Okay, so this morning we're continuing on in the doctrines of grace, and we're picking up kind of where we left off last week. We'll do a little bit of a recap. Um, so today I think perhaps we may finish up, we may wrap up uh, the, our first section in the doctrines of grace. Well, actually second section, because our first one I think was sovereignty of God. We'll probably be wrapping up, I think, today, if it goes as I plan, on total depravity or radical inability. So last week we started to, and we'll continue this week, to look at the historical arguments that have taken place um, within the church, mainly, regarding this concept of radical inability. Specifically, usually comes up under the, uh, the term of original sin. Um, last week, we looked at one of the earliest well-known arguments. That was between um, Augustine and Pelagius in the 5th in the century. And I gave a short introduction on the next major argument that arose, which was in the 16th century between um, the great reformer, Martin Luther, and the great humanist, Desiderius Erasmus. Now, just to recap, in case you weren't here, or in case you know a whole week's gone by and there's been a lot of things we've each had to deal with in our lives, um, we know who Martin Luther is, right? He was famous for nailing the 95 theses to the cathedral door in Wittenberg at 1517. It's the date that we have chosen, somewhat arbitrarily, to marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, although there were other things going on in other parts of Europe at the time that were just as important um, as what Martin Luther did. There were other men, like Zwingli in Switzerland, for example, that were basically running parallel to Martin Luther at this time. Apart from him, not that they were communicating, not that they knew what each other were doing, but there were other men that the Lord had inspired in this great movement at the same time. So then there's this individual, probably less well-known to those of us in the church, Desiderius Erasmus. Now Erasmus was much more well-known in Europe in the 16th century than Martin Luther was, at least initially. Erasmus was a great scholar. Um, he was famous. He was one of the top humanists. Now, we must differentiate between the humanists of this time period and the humanists of today. The humanists of today are atheistic. They deny God and they focus on man being really the master of all. Well, the humanists of Erasmus' time were believers in God. They were not atheists. They were scholarly men. Humanism at this time arose as kind of a, an argument against the really dry scholasticism that had come out of the Middle Ages. A scholastic movement um, reduced everything to an intellectual uh, debate, a very cold intellectual debate. And the humanists, what they wanted to do is bring life 
back into the debate. Um, they were men of letters, so to speak. They, they were men of literature. They were men of languages. And this is what was very important to Erasmus. Even though Erasmus, like Martin Luther, had been a monk, um, but he did not leave and uh, uh, didn't refute his, his monistic orders like Luther did. What Erasmus did is he took a leave of absence from his monastery to go to Paris to study at the University of Paris, the great center of humanism at this time, what we, the, the, the Sorbonne, as we call it. Um, he was there, and he fell in love with the learning, and he didn't want to go back. Basically, he went AWOL. Never, re, never returned um, from Paris to his monastery. Uh, however, they did not send out the shore patrol or the military police to take him into custody. He was just off and running, and he became a very well-known um, scholar. In fact, he's probably most well-known for his translation work. Uh, he wrote a, uh, a Greek translation of the New Testament, which was remarkable even now, even today. And I've heard Pastor Steve talk about it, about his use of it um, in preparation of sermons. So you can see, after all this time, uh, Erasmus uh, has impact on the church. Um, so he's not what we would consider you know, a black hat or a bad guy. He's not anti-God, anti-Christian. But he got off base on some stuff. So at this time, Martin Luther is starting to become well-known. His writings are being circulated throughout Europe. And Erasmus, being one of the most famous men in Europe, he is a friend, or at least in communication with, and does encounter King Henry VIII. And King Henry VIII is a staunch Roman Catholic at this time. The Church of England has not come into being, because Henry VIII has not decided it's time to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, and you know, be denied by the Pope. And we have all that in the, in the English Reformation which is very political in nature compared to the Protestant Reformation in general. But Erasmus um, tells King Henry VIII, apparently, I would imagine they're having some sort of conversation about this guy, Martin Luther, and how he has really gone off the reservation in his writings, and someone needs to put him in his place. Well, Erasmus tells King Henry that he is going to write uh, a treatise addressing what Martin Luther was proposing as far as what was wrong with the Roman Catholic Church and where it had gone so heavily into man's traditions and idolatry and it abandoned uh, the word of God. But, the, inner, but the, the important thing to know about Erasmus and all this is that even though he was a scholar, even though he had been a monk, he was really not interested in theology. It just really wasn't his thing. Um, literature and languages were his thing. Um, so he writes this, this, this treatise um, called A Discussion Concerning Free Will. And it was published in 1524. Um, basically, in this book, 
he's like starting a dialogue with Martin Luther. He's, he's beginning a discussion about where Martin Luther is off base. But basically, you know, he doesn't really get into, like I said, theology, because that's not his thing. He's not interested in theology. It's just a warmed-over rehash of Pelagius' argument about human morality and human sovereignty in determining our decisions, what we do, and how we live. So really, it wasn't a, a very good argument that he presented. What he did, in effect, was present a very easy target for Martin Luther to hit. It was like, you know, in those days, in the, in the age of, of sailing ships in the Navy, it was like t- towing a decaying hulk out in front of your ships of battle and allowing them to sail by and broadside, you know, for gunnery practice, this, this old ship that's just sitting there that can't defend itself nor even sail out of the way. So it was, it was a juicy target for Martin Luther. And he took advantage of that. So Luther, in response, the way he responded is he wrote probably his most well-known book, The Bondage of the Will, which was published in 1525, the year after Erasmus uh, published his work. So it's like if, when you read Bondage of the Will, it's, he's responding to what Erasmus is saying. It's like you're hearing a conversation. You're only hearing one side of it, but you can tell what the conversation's about because Luther sets it up. He sets up, you said, or you proposed this, and I reply to you thusly. So you can follow the conversation. You don't necessarily have to read uh, Erasmus's um, work. Um, and like I mentioned last week, um, Luther's book is a vividly hilarious depiction of how one must view God if man could actually displace the Lord from his throne. And there's this passage that, I I don't know, every time I read it, it kind of makes me laugh out loud. And I want to share it with you um, because Luther's making an excellent, excellent point here. And we really need to consider what he's saying. But I also want to show you that this is, this is a book that's readable. You know, that's not something that's like, oh my gosh, it was, it was written how long ago by, by a German? It's been translated? I, I could never, never, ever read it. You could, and you'd probably enjoy it. Anyway, this is what he says. He's responding to Erasmus. And Luther says, here I see, you see how he's, it's like a, a conversation. He's engaging. Here I see you are taking the view that the truth and usefulness of Scripture should be measured and decided according to the feeling of men. To be precise, of the ungodliest of men. So that nothing henceforth will be true, divine and wholesome. So that nothing henceforth will be true, divine and wholesome. But what these persons find pleasing and acceptable, and is what, and what is not, so will at once become useless 
untrue and harmful. I'm going to go on, but I, I just want to interject here. Do you see what Luther's saying? He's saying that Erasmus's argument, which is the same as Pelagius's argument, means that the greatest sinners, and we're, of course we're all sinners, but some are better at it than others. He's saying that the best of sinners, the most ungodliest of men, are the ones that will set the standard. It is their determination what is acceptable from God's word. If they don't like it, if it makes them feel bad about themselves and they reject it, then the argument of Pelagius and Erasmus basically is, no, man's morality must rule, that their decision, the sinner's decision, is ultimate. But Luther goes on to say, and this is where it gets really good. He, He says, but scripture says the opposite that all things stand or fall by the will and authority of God, and that all the earth keeps silence before the face of the Lord. One who talks as you do must imagine that the living God is no more than a wild, inconsequent ranter shouting from a soapbox, whose words you may interpret, receive, or refute as you please, according to their observed effect on the ungodly. Do you see what Luther is saying here, he's saying exactly what we hear today in our society and our culture. That the word of God doesn't matter. If you don't like it, just reject it. You pick and choose what you want. What does it reduce God to? Exactly what Martin Luther is saying, right? It's like you've, you've, you've seen maybe the videos or pictures or heard of, you know, in... Um, in St. James Park, I think it is, in London, where they have the speaker's corner. And I think they have the same thing, same sort of thing in Central Park, where anybody can get up on the, you know, the proverbial soapbox and talk about anything. So Luther's saying that's, what, that's how you're viewing God, that God is just offering an opinion, but he's offering an opinion like a, like a nutcase shouting in the park over, um, you know, the, the, the most inconsequential of things, rather than what God is revealing to us. And Luther paints another very vivid picture. This time of our radical inability to work out our own salvation. This is exactly what our topic is, right? Radical inability. And this is what Luther says, again from the bondage of the will. A man without the Spirit of God does not do evil against his will, under pressure, as though he was taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it, like a thief or a mugger, being dragged off against his will to punishment. But he does it spontaneously and voluntarily. And this willingness or volition is something which he cannot, in his own strength, eliminate, restrain, or alter. He goes on willing and desiring to do evil. And if external pressure forces him to act otherwise, nevertheless, his will within remains adverse to so doing and chafes under such constraint and opposition. That's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. This is exactly what Luther is arguing to Erasmus. So J.I. Packer, he made a commentary in... uh, 
in my introduction, my copy of Luther's Bondage of the Will that I wanted to share with you because I think Packer really kind of encapsulates uh, what's important here. And he wrote, um, if the almighty God of the Bible is to be our God, if the New Testament gospel is to be our message, if Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is any other position other than Luther's possible? Are we not, in all honesty, bound to stand with him in ascribing all might and majesty and dominion and power and all the glory of our salvation to God alone? Surely no more important or far-reaching question confronts the church today. Solo fide, solo gratia, solo, soli dio gloria, writes J.I. Packer. Now, Packer's saying that this confronts the church today. Obviously, Packer's not writing today. He's gone home to the Lord. But this was a few decades ago, right? So it's been a question. We see it be arising in a way that we, that we can take note of it historically in the 5th century. It was going on before that. It just got to the point where it was a festering boil in the church and needed to be dealt with and eventually was at the uh, Synod of Carthage, where Pelagius, was, his teaching was declared to be heretical. It was not to be taught in the church. Remember, at this time, we had a universal church. We had not broken into denominations at that point. So the one church said, no, we're not teaching this. Ta-da! 16th century. 11 centuries later. It has become a big deal again. Martin Luther needs to address it. Erasmus is arguing for it. Then, if you recall back, it's been a while, but in our introductory lesson, we learned where the doctrines of grace came from, right? The five points of Calvinism. Recall that it was the followers of Jacob Arminius in the Netherlands who in the 1600s, we're trying to break away from the teaching of the Dutch church, bearing in mind that virtually all churches at this time in Western history were state churches. Church and state were joined uh, in a way where uh, you basically were told for the most part you know, what the church should be teaching. So the Arminians wanted to break away from the state teaching, which was Calvinistic. Um, and then we, the, the Calvinists dealt with it at the Synod of Dort, where they came out with our five doctrines of grace, which basically were refutations of the five points that the Arminius, the Remonstrants, as they were called, had made. So it came up, you know, a hundred years later. We're dealing with this again. Now, J.I. Packer, in this introduction, says this is the most important question confronting the church today. It's something that is just not of historical interest. It's something that is of vital interest that we need to understand. We're going to be confronted with it time and time again. And it is, at times, a thorny issue. It, it requires some thought, doesn't it? It's not something that we automatically just get, because, because why? What have we learned that we're dealing with? 
We're dealing with our radical inability. We're dealing with original sin. We're dealing with the effects of the fall in the garden. So yeah, doesn't it make sense that it's been around for a long time? It's been around since the fall. So now, I've kind of tipped my hand here that this hasn't gone away because Packer is saying we're dealing with it today. But another big, I think, milestone that we should look at is the case of Jonathan Edwards. Many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards. If you have not, don't worry. I will tell you about him. Okay, so... Okay, Jonathan Edwards was a Reformed Protestant preacher and thinker, writer in colonial America in the, uh, in the 1700s. So that would make him 18th century. He was born in 1703. Lived in the Northeast, part of the country, in what we call the state of Massachusetts now. He uh, attended and graduated from the very newly uh, built and uh, established college at Yale. And he was ordained into the ministry in a congregational church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And he was a key figure in the Great Awakening that occurred in 1740. Very important uh, person in that. He preached the necessity of a new birth. And he defended evangelical revivals as works of the Holy Spirit. Well, eventually, he served as a missionary to American Indians in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, and parts of it were still the wilderness. You know, it's not... It was a different... It was a different nation. It was a different world then. Um, this was in 1750. He goes and works as a missionary. And in 1754, he writes The Freedom of the Will. And this is what we're going to examine. We're going to examine his treatise on the freedom of the will. But to round out his life, in 1757, he becomes the president of a new college, newly established the College of New Jersey. Today we call it Princeton. And Princeton had a marvelous reputation from that very beginning up until the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, as a place where solid, decent, wonderful Reformed theology was taught. And, but it's unfortunately no longer the case, just as it's really no longer the case that Yale is producing men like Jonathan Edwards. But his tenure at what became Princeton was short-lived. He died of smallpox there three months later. 
So regarding his, his writings on the freedom of the will, it is sometimes suggested that although we have free will in many areas, we do not have free will in all areas. That we can choose what we like in the little things, but big things are reserved for God. We can decide whether we order super salad with our dinner at a restaurant. We can, but, 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 but there's many things we can think of in, in our lives that we don't have control of, that we cannot make decisions that have an impact. For example, our IQ. By the, by the power of our free will, we cannot raise our IQ by 20 points. By the power of our free will, we cannot run a four-minute mile if we're unable to run a four-minute mile beforehand. And so the idea is, in exactly the same way, none of us, by the mere exercise of our will, can choose God. Well, there's some truth in this idea, but it misses something, right? It's an attractive and it's an easy explanation that may seem to us, you know, the way to answer it. But Edwards, in his Freedom of the Will, persuades or attempts to persuade us to take a different approach from looking at this. He thinks that this is really, we're kind of getting off base here. Not on the basic issue or our conclusions, not not on the idea that, that God is sovereign, but in the way that the will is defined. What is the will? Well, Edwards defined the will. And it's remarkable, when you think about it, that no one had done that yet. We just assumed when we talk about human will, we knew what we were talking about. But did they? And do we? Everyone assumes that we know what the will is. We call the will that thing in us that makes choices, right? So we understand that. But Edwards says, no, that's, that's not accurate. Instead, he defines the will as that by which the mind chooses anything. So notice, we're talking about, this is the will is what, by which we choose. And he's saying, no, he, he inserts the mind in there. The mind is what's active in doing the choosing. That means, according to Edwards, that we ch- what we choose is not determined by the will itself, but by our minds. We choose what we think is the most desirable course of action, according to Edwards. So he defines the will not as a thing or separate part of our being, but the will is a function of our mind. And then he speaks of motives. Edward asks, why is it that the mind chooses one thing rather than another? He says it's because of motives. What is our motive? He says the mind is not neutral. It chooses what it judges to be best for itself. If a person must choose between two courses of action, choose between one, 
which seems to be good for that person, and an undesirable alternative for that person, then Edwards says that person would be acting irrationally to choose the undesirable alternative. In other words, that person would be insane. So does this mean then that the will is bound, like we've seen Luther argue? Edwards says no, to the contrary. The will is free. It is always free. It is free to choose and will always choose what the mind thinks best. Now here's an important thing to remember, that Luther and Edwards are going to the same point. They're just thinking about it a little bit differently, right? And I think that Edwards just kind of expands upon Luther's premise and he brings in an element that we should have been thinking about all along. And hopefully it will help us understand why Luther is talking about the will being bound. So the question then must be, what does the mind think best? This is the heart of the matter when it comes to salvation. When confronted with God, the mind of a sinner never thinks that God's way is the good way. The will is free to choose God. Nothing is stopping it, according to Edwards. But the mind does not regard submission to and service of God as desirable. It turns away from God because it does not regard or does not want God to be sovereign over it. The mind, the human mind, the fallen sinful human mind, demands its own sovereignty. It does not consider the righteousness of God to be the way to personal fulfillment or happiness. Now that makes perfect sense to me. I remember how I used to think like that. That I don't want to be a Christian because that means I'm not going to be happy anymore. I can't do the things I want you know, and the things I desired and the choices I made were in opposition to what God would have of me. So the mind, of course, is wrong in its judgments. The way it chooses is what? Actually the way of alienation and misery, the end of which is death. We kind of trick ourselves. Our fallen mind tricks us. I guess that's one way of looking at it anyway. Therefore, unless God changes the way we think, which he does by the miracle of the new birth, our minds always tell us to turn from God. So Lauren Bettner says, As the bird with the broken wing is free to fly, but not able, so the natural man is free to come to God, but not able. How can he repent of his sin when he loves it? How can he come to God when he hates him? Those are good questions. Perhaps questions that you've mulled over in your mind. Maybe you've actually talked to others about it. So Edwards distinguishes between moral and natural inability. Because man's inability is moral and not natural, the individual is responsible for the choices he or she makes according to 
Edwards. And here's an example of what he means. Think of the animal kingdom. There are carnivores who eat only meat, and there are herbivores who eat only grass or plants. If you place hay or oats before a lion, it won't eat them. It's not because the lion cannot physically take a bite and chew the hay or the oats and swallow it. It's because the lion hates the hay and the oats. The lion will, not, will choose not to eat it. Because why? It's not in its nature to eat hay or oats. It's in its nature to eat meat. This idea of eating, and think about Psalms 34.8, taste and see that the Lord is good. What Jesus said, that John records in chapter 6, verse 51, where Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Why won't an unregenerate sinner taste or eat as God's words command? Because he hates such food that God offers, just as the lion hates the hay or the oats. It is against his nature to want what God puts before him to feed upon. So what does God do? He doesn't leave his people in that state, does he? He changes us. We become regenerated before we even know it. And then suddenly, this feast that we turned our nose up at, that repelled us, that we found repugnant, becomes the most delicious morsel that we could possibly imagine. And we eat it and we grow, and we're made strong, and it changes us. There's nothing in the world like that. There's, it doesn't work that way in the animal kingdom. You can't force feed a lion and turn him into a tame ox and hook, hook, hitch your cart to him, can you? No, he'll turn on you and devour you. It's just like we cannot change ourselves. We cannot change others when we have these, these conversations with our friends and our family, when we're sharing the gospel with them, as we are commanded to do, as we should rightly do, just remember it's the nature of that person that's rejecting it, that the Holy Spirit, if it is God's good pleasure, can and will change that person. But that's God's decision. That's God's work. And God blesses us by using us as those instruments to reach others. So, in wrapping up, I want to talk about old and practical doctrine, right? Um, So, our review of historical debates on man's free will versus God's sovereignty demonstrate that this is not new teaching. We've seen this. So, we're going to look at some more examples from church history very quickly. It'll help us to understand that the doctrines of grace or the purest and most basic form of the Christian doctrine embraced by most Protestant denominations. And it's sobering to consider how many of the creeds and confessions that we're going to look at very, very, very briefly have been ignored by the respective denominations today. Because the church, by and large, is under the influence of secular humanism. Not the humanism of Erasmus, but the atheistic 
humanism that rejects God and focuses on man. And the first one is the Belgic Confession, which was established in 1561. We're back to the 16th century. And it established the principles of Calvinism universally in the Netherlands. And it states, and this is the important part that we want to think about, is, quote, we believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind. There is the doctrine of original sin. This is a, a, an important basic understanding that this confession says we must grasp. Then we have the 39 Articles of the Church of England in 1562. These are a set of principles which establish the Church of England's doctrinal position on these controversies that arose in the 16th century, which continue today. Don't make the mistake of thinking this is something that only concerned the people then. Like Packer rightly points out to us, this is the most important thing facing the church today. But anyway, this says, quote, The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling upon God. Again, back to radical inability based on the original sin. Then the Westminster Larger Catechism in 1647. So this is a body of teaching established by the Westminster Assembly, which was appointed by the English Parliament to unify the beliefs of the Church of England, put everybody on the same page, so to speak, which states, quote, the guilt of Adam's first sin corrupted his nature, whereby he, his, he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually. The Westminster Confession of Faith, same year, 1647, it has within it this, and I quote, Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to do any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Now our own confession of faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. This is our historic confession to which our church, Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, wholly ascribes. It is by these things that we understand the Word of God to be teaching us, that this is the, the, the road down which we should stay and not stray off of. And it says, quote, Our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. That's in chapter 2 of our confession. So contrary to what some argue today, the historic Reformation confessions of faith are not dealing, like I said, with matters that were only a concern during a certain specific historical period that is long gone. No. Man's standing before God should concern us as much now as it did the Protestant divines of the Reformation and post-Reformation eras. We are, we are engaged in the same discussions, the same arguments. It's the same fallacies that are coming up. So 
Don't be tricked by atheistic, secular humanism into thinking this is archaic and irrelevant today. Now, I know the wording of some of these good old confessions and creeds is a little bit difficult. It's a little bit old-fashioned. And I know as I read it to you in a fairly rapid manner based on time, it can be hard to absorb it. But I promise you, if you read it slowly, if you read our confession slowly, you'll see the main argument at least. Some of the sentences, may, sure, may be obscure, but I encourage you to read this stuff. What's important for us is what those who have gone before us, good, godly, intelligent, educated men, they struggled with putting these things down on paper. It wasn't done in a haphazard or a quick manner. They realized they were writing something that they would be accountable to God for. That what they wrote would have an impact on not only the believers of their time, but full, full well knowing that it would have impact on believers in the future. This was thought out. And what I want you to see, the main point of what I'm making, of reading all these various creeds and confessions, is they are unified in this concept that we are in a state of total depravity, radical inability, based on original sin. There is no dissension whatsoever amongst all of these creeds and confessions. And think about it. Far from keeping us from Christ, the true knowledge of radical depravity actually helps us abandon ourselves to his grace. When we understand this, it's, we know it's not a matter of, I just got to do better, I got to be more like him or her, or these other things, being, you know, these, what, what I have called before the killer bees that will crush you. You know, we just need to realize that the change is not our work, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, and we give thanks, those of us that have undergone this regeneration, we give thanks for it. And we pray for those who have not yet. But remember, we don't know the fate of the other people that we encounter in this world. That we may be dealing with someone who at this point in time is the most unregenerate, hateful, despicable person we have ever met. Yet that very, they may very well be a brother or sister in Christ tomorrow. Paul of Tarsus is the best example. Someone who wants to murder us today may be one of our most valued and precious brethren tomorrow by the grace of God and God alone. That's it for total depravity and radical inability. We're stepping away from total depravity now. <laughs> and we're going to go on. The next topic will be unconditional election, which will be marvelous. After dealing with our original sin, we'll be concentrating on the graciousness of God in our unconditional election. So join me in prayer, and we'll close our Bible study hour. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for those who have gone before us and have written, left a written record for us, Lord, that helps us to know things of your word, that explains what your message is theologically in the Bible to us so that we may understand it. Lord, we give thanks for these men who've gone before, who've struggled over these things and left a record for us, Lord. May, may they just um, be on our hearts, be on our minds, and encourage us to delve deeper into your word, Lord, and look at how your word is explained by these marvelous holy men. Father, bless this day as we continue worshiping you, Lord. We ask for blessings upon uh, Pastor Steve as he delivers the 11 o'clock message that um, as this day goes on, Lord, that we may come back at, at 5 in the evening and hear another wonderful message from your word, Lord, and that this day may we dedicate it to you to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.